This is Wavemaker Conversations, the podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My dream guest this week would have been Harper Lee, author of To Kill a Mockingbird. At that time, she was the working title was Atticus. I would have asked Nell Harper Lee about her childhood, including her close friend and neighbor, Truman Capote. And as their neighbors told me, Truman was too soft for the boys and Nell was too rough for the girls. So they complimented each other and she was sort of his bodyguard. I would have asked Nell Harper Lee about her mother. Her mother uh, suffered from bipolar disorder. And so Truman and Nell had this in common, sort of an incomplete uh, family experience. And of course, I would have asked her about her father, A.C. Lee, the inspiration for Atticus Finch. In fact, Mr. Lee has, in his own life, as a young attorney with only four years' experience, was appointed to defend two young black men accused of murdering a white man. And despite his best efforts, they were both hanged. And I would have asked Harper Lee why, after all these years, did she allow the publication of the first manuscript she submitted, Go Set a Watchman, which after two years of heavy editing and rewriting would become To Kill a Mockingbird. I really wish that people who care about Miss Lee had told her not to do this. I couldn't get Harper Lee. Nobody has. I think I found the next best guest. Charles Shields, author of the richly detailed biography, Mockingbird. Charles Shields, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. Before you became an author, you were a high school teacher. You taught To Kill a Mockingbird to high school freshmen. Yes. Give us your one-minute summary for those of us who haven't read it of To Kill a Mockingbird. And have you, have you read Go Set a Watchman yet? Yes, I have. Yeah. Give us a one-minute summary of each and a sense of why there is this tension and why it's become such a big cultural deal. Okay, until this week, all that people had read at, of novel length by Harper Lee is To Kill a Mockingbird. Most young people read it in high school, and that's an ideal time to read it because it features a very a strong protagonist in the figure of Atticus Finch, who is seen through the eyes of a nine-year-old narrator named Scout. It's two adventures going on simultaneously. For the YA crowd, there's making Boo Radley come out down the street, who's a mysterious man, kind of an American Frankenstein. On the adult level, there's a very um, controversial trial going on in town that's ripping the little village apart. It's the uh, accusation that a a good man, a well-known man, Tom Robinson, has uh, assaulted, sexually assaulted a white girl. Um, so that book, put in the hands of a 14-year-old, tends to make a major impact because they, they see the importance of moral choices. It's a great coming-of-age coming story. And until this week, that's what we had from Harper Lee. And now we have Go Set a Watchman, which was written earlier than To Kill a Mockingbird. Go Set a Watchman, Harper Lee herself, has said that it is, it's the parent of To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, I've maintained that it's the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, which passed through the very practiced and experienced hands of Tay Hohoff, a New York editor who was sophisticated, a woman in her 60s, Quaker-educated, who, as a matter of fact, the very year that uh, Harper Lee finished To Kill a Mockingbird and handed it in to Lippincott, that same year, 1959, Tay Hohoff published a biography of an abolitionist in Illinois who was killed as a result of his editorials in the local paper. So she had in the back of her mind a, a strong hero who stood up in a small town. And I think that accounts for the, the characterization of Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. But that's not what we get in Ghost Set a Watchman. So, so, again, for, the, for, those of us, for those of us freshmen in high school right now who are listening to you, so Atticus Finch, in a paragraph, tell us why he resonates so much. And, and is he... Is he a real person? Is he a very realistic character? He's the way adults seem. Good adults, decent adults uh, seem to young people who don't know the ways of the world yet. Um, it's the 1930s, and Atticus Finch is one of the more educated men in town. 
And uh, he is a former state legislator. He's an attorney, and he takes on this controversial case. What's so impressive about him is his moral certitude. He strides like a colossus through the pages of To Kill a Mockingbird. He's a moral giant. In fact, that's emphasized in the film version by keeping the camera kind of low when it looks at Atticus, and he seems like an enormous uh, presence in the frame. Um, so he's, he's a man to look up to, literally and figuratively. And and his daughter in the novel, in To Kill a Mockingbird, and in real life, uh, looked up to her father, correct? Yes, uh, her father, the, the, the author, Nell Harper Lee, her father was very much like Atticus Finch. His name was A.C. Lee. He was a self-educated lawyer. He owned the majority share in the local newspaper. He was on the board of directors for the bank, president of the Chamber of Commerce, really one of the outstanding civic figures in that part of Alabama. And he was beloved by his children. There were four children, three girls, uh, and one boy, Edwin, who passed away in his 30s. Uh, so uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is, is the idealization of a father by an adoring nine-year-old. But it doesn't lack for drama, and it doesn't lack in terms of an important arc um, and setbacks, uh, revelations. It's really a very thrilling story, and some people read that book again to themselves every year just as a treat to go back to little Maycomb, Alabama, as she calls it, which is based on her hometown of Monroeville. So Monroeville, Alabama, which was a town fewer than a 1,000 people, right? Yes. And so there's so many places we can really start with the author, but, but just, just to let you know, so one of my children uh, in eighth grade was assigned to Kill a Mockingbird, loved it, heard about the way our hero Atticus Finch is now portrayed in Go Set a Watchman. And if you want to just summarize the essence of the contradiction, on the surface at least, between the Atticus Finch we have come to love as a nation and the Atticus Finch portrayed in Go Set a Watchman in a nutshell... Well, this book, which was actually written before To Kill a Mockingbird, served as the first draft, is told through, as, uh, told through the eyes of a 26-year-old narrator who comes back to her hometown from New York, and she sees it in all of its ugliness. Uh, there are you know, still charming and eccentric people there, and, and people say, howdy to you on the street. It's kind of a Mayberry in Alabama. But the things that people say are shocking. Um, uh, Atticus Finch uh, is, seems to be a man straddling two worlds. And he's, on the one hand, a kind and compassionate man. On the other hand, he's a white Southerner who's worried that everything's about to blow up in their face. They're concerned about civil rights. They're concerned about um, uh, Negroes, as they call them, getting out of hand. Uh, they're worried about communist infiltration. It's, it's really the, the underbelly of prejudice, racism, and it's uh, fraught with vulgar language. Things are in that book that uh, people would not repeat today. Uh, it's insensitive. And so now the older Atticus Finch yes. is, is, is a member of a council that really is not much better than the KKK. And it is very hard. And when, when my child who read that book in eighth grade heard about the depiction, he said, it's, it's not the same person. Mm -hmm. It can't be the same person. Mm -hmm. And yet some critics say, oh, yes, it can, because people can have contradictions within themselves. Mm -hmm. So as you have studied this for so many years, now encounter this Atticus Finch in his 70s who's spouting racist ideas, the mm -hmm. same man who defended so, so forcefully that innocent black man. I speak of them as if they're real because that's the, that's the feeling you get, right? When you read right. To Kill a Mockingbird right. in any great novel. Uh, it, is it possible for one person to have such contradictions within his or her character? Well, certainly it is. Uh, we're, you know, we all have our prejudices and contradictions. I think the key problem here um, is that Go Set a Watchman is without art. It, it, there's no, it, she doesn't know what to emphasize. It's highly autobiographical. It's memoristic. And it tends to be all about her. It's as she reacts to everything, her shock, her dismay. Um, it doesn't have a narrative arc. Uh, people don't make any significant moral choices. It's a book by a young woman, 26 years old, Nell Harper Lee, living in a cold water flat, working as an airline reservationist, trying to get down 
the differences that she suddenly is aware of as a result of living in New York in the 1950s versus coming out of the Deep South. So now let's get to the real Nell Harper Lee. Okay. Harper Lee, shortened Harper Lee for for the book. Mm-hmm. And and so she leaves her small town. First of all, I, I'm fascinated with her childhood and the childhood mm-hmm. you depict. Let's take a step back and, and what year was it that you decided you wanted to learn about this really reclusive author who had written this essential American novel that became a staple in in literature classes throughout our school system. Well, I was teaching the, the book to high school freshmen in the 1980s, and the students would become enamored of Scout and her adventures, and they wanted to know more about the author. A common question was, well, Harper Lee, is he still alive? And uh, so I tried to find out as much information as I could about the author, but at that time, there were just encyclopedia entries. And, you know, our high school, the school that I taught at was a middle-class high school outside Chicago. I was there for a long time. And it under, began to undergo a, a demographic change. When I first started teaching the book, the, the entire high school was almost uniformly white. Seventeen years later, it was about a third minority, Asian, black, um, and I was starting to have trouble with Tom Robinson and his passiveness. I was getting a little worried about the white paternalism, you know, as it shone forth through Atticus Finch. So uh, when I left teaching and began writing for young people, and that's what I did at first, I wrote nonfiction books for young people, it was in the back of my mind to go explore how this book came to be and what Harper Lee intended it to be. And that what was led, that led to my research in uh, about 2004 to 2006 in finding out about the life of Harper Lee. And you reached out to her. I did. She would not give you an interview. No, no, she would not. Um, she made it quite clear she wouldn't cooperate. In fact, she called friends and told them not to share photographs. But, you know, I think, Michael, the deeper we get into this, I think we're peeling back a layer here that might be very interesting about the the creation of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is it doesn't seem to be wholly Nell Harper Lee's. It seems to be uh, the fingerprints of her editor, Tay Hoff, seem to be all over it. And it could be that one of the reasons that Harper Lee never wrote another novel after To Kill a Mockingbird is that this is what she had to say, and it was crafted and recrafted by an expert who retired a few years later. And uh, Miss Lee doesn't feel a great deal of ownership about To Kill a Mockingbird. In fact, she doesn't like to talk about it in public company. And she, she, in letters, she's referred to it dismissively as The Bird. Um, so it could be that, that Nell Harper Lee didn't expect this amount of fame or scrutiny. And, you know, it was this aversion that she had to being the public eye was compounded by the fact that To Kill a Mockingbird was not wholly hers. That's incredible to hear you say that the author of, of, of again, one of the seminal works in America, at least in terms of impact, did not feel a sense of ownership. And it really was such an original work at the time when you think about when this came out. Yes. Uh, it was sort of ahead of its time, wasn't it? it well, yes, it, it, it came out right on the cusp of the civil rights movement. It came out in 1960. Already there were uh, sit-ins and a movement in that direction. So um, racial justice was very much on the minds of a lot of people. And the flip side of that, racial, racial turmoil, fear, that's one of the reasons that Atticus Finch and Goes Out of Watchmen is meeting with other members of the White Citizens Council. It's sort of the Ku Klux Klan 2.0. It's for upscale people, people who dress in three-piece suits and want to decide what they can do legally and economically to keep this situation under control. Um, so, uh, you know, we see that transition between the two books, and, and it's disheartening. So let's take a step back and really introduce the audience to Harper Lee. So she's growing up in this small, deep south Alabama town, and I learned from your book she had a reputation for being extremely independent from a very young age, uh, including sticking up physically for her good friend, and this is incredible, who grew up in her neighborhood, Truman Capote. Tell us about that, about that relationship, and what it said about the girl, the young girl, Harper Lee. And where did she get that independence from? Was it was she born with it, or was it encouraged by her parents? Did she have role models? How, how did she become such an independent, strong 
young girl. Well, she grew up right next door to Truman Capote. Truman was in town because his parents uh, loved the high life. His father was a disbarred attorney and his mother wanted to be a movie star. Truman was slowing them up. He was actually born in New Orleans. Truman was dragging them down, and so they deposited him in Monroeville with three unmarried aunts. Uh, They loved him a great deal, uh, and he loved them, but this emotional ache for his mother never left him. In fact, one time after she came for a visit and then left rather precipitously, she left behind a bottle of perfume, and then a little bit after she was gone, Truman drank the whole thing because he wanted to keep her essence with him, inside of him. Harper Lee was lonely in a different way. She was a very bright, verbal child um, with not many social skills. Part of her independence comes from the fact that she uh, has a little difficulty interacting with other people, except on her own terms. Um, Her mother uh, suffered from bipolar disorder, and so Truman and Nell had this in common, sort of an incomplete uh, family experience in that Nell's mother always had to be watched and Truman's parents weren't around. It's a very touching moment in To Kill a Mockingbird when Dill, who's modeled after Truman Capote, says to Scout, who's modeled after Nell, well, you see, my parents just don't want me. And that's really something for a, a child of eight or nine to say, to, you know, to try to accept. My parents just don't want me. So they went through the world together, two articulate young children who loved to read. And as their neighbors told me, Truman was too soft for the boys and Nell was too rough for the girls. So they complimented each other and she was sort of his bodyguard. And literally his bodyguard. I mean, tell me about some of the things she would do to protect this boy who, as you say, who's who's parents or his mother's thought was too effeminate. Right. Well, uh, Nell accepted Truman for what he was. She never tried to change him. Uh, and you know what's interesting? Truman never made any apologize, any apologies for who he was, not, not as an adult either. Truman was who he was. And so there's a kind of an authenticity between both children. Nell never looked for approval. She uh, was rough and wore overalls and got into fights. She would beat up people who tried to attack Truman. And Truman preferred going around in kind of an ice cream outfit of uh, short pants and a jacket. Um, So they just were who they were. They had a sense that they were different and there was nothing they could do about it. And so then she grows up and she graduates from high school. She goes to University of Alabama, correct? Yeah. Well, she spent her freshman year at an all-girls school called Huntington College. In It's still there in Montgomery, although now it's co-ed. Uh, she only was there for about a year. Uh, I think she found it a little bit too confining. And it was a bit like a finishing school in those days. The girls were very concerned about appearance and dates and, you know, that sort of thing. And so she went to Alabama, which was a bigger pond for her to swim in. And and once she got out of there, University of Alabama, what, what did she major in? Well, that's the thing. She didn't finish. Um, that's part of the misinformation about Nell Harper Lee. Many people assume she has a law degree from Alabama. At that time, Alabama had a five-year law program, the way some universities have a five-year architecture program. She didn't finish her final year there. She left because she didn't want to be a lawyer. She wanted to be a writer. She found her feet writing for the campus newspaper, where she wrote a lot of witty and, and uh, edgy columns. Uh, and then she wrote for the uh, satirical magazine on campus called uh, the Rammer Jammer. And she realized, this is, my, this is my meat. This is what I can do. This is what I'm exceptional at. By that time, Truman was already beginning to taste fame. And where was he? In New York. So uh, Nell followed him there and decided that she was going to live the, you know, the life of the bohemian who was working on an easy job and writing on the weekends and at night. And, and then I, I have to say, so there's that term that you mentioned Truman Capote used to describe the two of them as being sort of, you know, outsiders. What was that term again? Well, they were comfortable with their differentness. They understood that they were not like other, other children, and so they had to accept that. So, so they go. So they both go to New York, and you have a description. And I didn't realize this, but back in the late '50s and early '60s, there was a, a group of, you know, a, a, well, right from your book, all the Southerners in New York, and this is from um, I'm not sure who's telling you this. Maybe you're one of the chief revelers, Eugene Walter, mm-hmm. a guy from Mobile, Mobile, Alabama. 
all the Southerners in New York would get together about every 10 days or two weeks and cry over Smithfield ham. He said <laughs> it was a community, like a religious group, except it wasn't a church. Southerners always, by secret gravity, find themselves together. You always knew if there was any kind of trouble, uh, it was like having cousins in town. So there was this Southern community in New York, and by the way, were they generally segregationists? Were they more progressive desegregationists? What, what, was, what was your sense? They, they were more progressive, and one of the reasons they were in New York was they liked the diversity. One of those uh, Southerners, uh, a friend of Harper Lee's from college, was married to Zoot Sims and was very much involved in the life of Harlem. And then, you know, the so, j- so for you, for you, for you, for you people who are not jazz fans, uh-huh. there, Zoot, Zoot Sims was one of the great tenor sax players. Right. Yes, and so going down, going down to Harlem was a, a popular thing for people to do, and there were you know a lot of Southerners involved in that scene who had uh, cut their teeth on on gospel music and church music down south. So yeah, Southerners always did get together, and that's where Nell first began talking, or well, began telling people, "I'm working on a book." But at that time, she was the working title was Atticus. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, the podcast for the insanely curious. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder, and my guest is Charles Shields, author of a fascinating biography of Harper Lee called Mockingbird. In a moment, the remarkable Christmas present that really enabled Harper Lee, who had been struggling for eight years in New York City with her manuscript, to get it done. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and culture shapers. I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my life. Tech, culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at Play.it. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, the podcast for the insanely curious. Our subject is the new publication of the manuscript that would ultimately become To Kill a Mockingbird. My guest is Charles Shields, author of the richly detailed biography Mockingbird. By the way, we should take even another step back because there is a scene from your book. It's a very moving scene. It's a Christmas morning. And she is with some well-to-do friends. She had spent Christmas Eve in this New York, was it a brownstone? Yes. And she wakes up and she opens up the Christmas present she gave them. Tell us (laughs) about that Christmas present, which changed her life as a writer. Took to Nell right away, and they began having her over, or having her over socially. Well, the, around 1956, uh, when as Christmas was beginning to come around, um, Nell was going to go home uh, to Monroeville, but she couldn't. She didn't have enough time off. She didn't have the seniority, so she was going to have to stay in town. And the Browns thought it was very sad that she would wake up on Christmas morning in her little apartment alone. And they said, "Well, why don't you stay over with us?" So she stayed over, and on Christmas morning she got up, and the Browns were doing pretty well for themselves. It was a you know fire in the fireplace and two children running around in footy pajamas, and the place was all decorated, and they had the radio on low playing Christmas carols. And Nell gave them little secondhand presents that she had picked up, a secondhand book for Michael, and I think a picture of Paris for uh, Joy. And then they waited, and there was a little kind of an uncomfortable silence. And Nell thought that maybe she had overstepped the invitation by bringing presents. And finally they said, oh, go look on the tree. Your present's on the tree. So Nell goes over to the tree and looks at the ornaments, and there's an envelope stuck into the boughs of the tree with her name on, written on the outside that says Nell. She takes it out, gives him a quizzical look, opens the envelope, and inside is a letter that says, You have a year off to do nothing except write from your friends, Michael and Joy. And paperclip to the letter is a blank check. And when she asked them, what does this mean? They said, well, you can take a writing sabbatical. Make the check out for whatever it would cost you to do nothing except 
you know, write full time, not work. And she said, well, it's such an awful risk. And they said, no, you've been reading your, your things aloud to us, and you, you can't continue to write with your left hand, and when it's convenient, you've got to get up in the morning and go to your job as a writer. So she did. She filled out the check for an amount that she thought would carry her through with rent and groceries and utilities, and for the next year, she polished off Go Set a Watchman. It's, it's almost like it, it takes a, you know, writing is so such a solitary act, right? But clearly... It is a community act in this case, and, and even more maybe than we want to believe as, as we go back to your point about the editor. So she, so now she's got this financial freedom. She did not take advantage of it. After reading your book, I see she was, she was still frugal. You know, she did not, she, she spent her money wisely, and she wrote, and she wrote, and then, and at this point, by the way, a lot of people, I mean, she, she was tough. She was resilient because at this point, a lot of people would have said, I've been trying this for eight years in New York. I'm going back home. And she didn't. Right. And she took how long to write this first manuscript, which we now discover and buy as uh, under the title Go Set a Watchman. That's coming up on nine years now that she's been working on it. And there, and there are elements of it in her college writing. For a literary magazine at Huntington College, she wrote a story about a wise lawyer with a kind of a folksiness who looks for all the world a little bit like Atticus Lee, Atticus Finch. And uh, so it was in the back of her mind to transform her father into a, a country lawyer with a lot of common sense and and a little bit of Christian piety, and, uh, you know, make him into uh, a great man. So she finishes uh, Ghost at a Watchman about 1957 or so, and finds an agent, and it gets worked over under the hands of her agent a bit, you know, and then it lands on the desk of Tay Hohoff, her editor, who became her editor at Lippincott and & Company. And they sat her down and said, well... You have a great voice, and I can just feel that red dust rising off the road and that sun falling out of the sky. Great descriptions. But you don't know how to construct a novel. And that's key. You see, a novel's not just 60,000. I'm sorry. Were those, I have to interrupt you there. Was that the specific message that you—were you, they that— straightforward and and tough with her. You don't know how to construct a novel. Where did you get that? Um, Tay Hohoff, later in a corporate history for Lippincott, was asked to write an essay, what it was like working with Harper Lee. And uh, she described um, their meeting and the problems with the book. And it was primarily one of structure. Because a novel is just not a long series of events, you know, that total up to sixty to 80,000 words. There's got to be a narrative arc. People make moral choices. Um, chapters are divided into scenes. You build a novel. It, it, and then there's the matter of art. You know, what voice are you adapting here? How close do you want to come to your subject? So Tay guided Nell through three complete rewrites, rewrites of Go Set a Watchman, which eventually became To Kill a Mockingbird. And even then, she cautioned her, this may not sell a lot of copies, you know. <laughs> um, racial tension is a very sensitive subject, and you've got at your center here a rape trial, which in 1960 was uh, also very sensitive. Uh, to give you an idea what this age was like, uh, you couldn't say uh, sweat on television. The word was perspiration. So people were, you know, qu quite concerned about protocol and civil relations, and a book that, like To Kill a Mockingbird, could have been combustible. Well, instead it was embraced by reviewers all over the North, but she did get hate mail from the South, saying that she had done nothing more than just give Northerners fodder or reason for hating them. Um, but she soldiered on, and then by 1964 she decided that she'd had enough fame in the limelight and was tired of questions like, what are you working on now, and will the next book have the same characters? And she disappeared. And, and, but what year was it made into a movie? 1962. So that was how many years after publication? Two. So that happened pretty fast, and I understand her agent really negotiated a hell of a deal for her, and she even, according to your account, mm -hmm. uh, was, was upset about the, the bargaining process, but it right. ended up benefiting her enormously. Just give us, give us a sense of that. Well, Nell uh, didn't really understand the movie business, which was Annie Laurie Williams' specialty. You see, Annie Laurie Williams was her agent and worked with her husband, Maurice Crane, who was a former uh, New York journalist. And Maurice handled the line editing and that sort of thing and would give suggestions to writers about how to make their narrative tighter. Annie Laurie handled film rights. She 
handled the film rights for Gone with the Wind for Margaret Mitchell. Uh, and Nell wanted to be involved in every step of the way. You know, she this was exciting, and it was her book, and she actually began trying to recruit people to play the lead. Um, she wrote to Spencer Tracy and offered him the part, uh, and then he was, she was politely told that Mr. Tracy was busy. Um, and then uh, word came that Bing Crosby would love to play Atticus, uh, which met with a lot of hilarity in Annie Williams' office. Uh, as her husband said, well, he can be Atticus provided he doesn't wear a collar and sing. Um, so, <laughs> it was, But eventually they, they came around to an agreement which was satisfactory to everyone. To, uh, Nell, gets tw- Nell still receives 12% of the royalties from the film. But, you know, had it not been for Gregory Peck, the film never would have been made because... In the early 1960s, everybody was crazy about big pictures, technicolor pictures, you know, Ride the High Country and things like that. Um, and here's a, a sort of an arty film about a small town and racial tension, and people couldn't understand if it was another go, you know, another old yeller or whether it was gone with the, or was, uh, you know, uh, something more controversial. Only Gregory Peck had the vision, and he helped pay for most of the film. So now we've got this again, the prequel or the, the first draft, mm-hmm. which was... So you gave me some insights here because, you know, you wonder how much of this was from Harper Lee's heart. And, and you know, just reading the general news accounts, you get the sense that, okay, she had this editor, the editor told her, go back, rework it, recraft it. And that's the only sense we get from the general news accounts. And what you're telling me is that she really, that editor... Took a was a had a very engaged role throughout the process shaping what would become To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, in fact, there was a fascinating article in the Atlantic just the other day, and um, I never saw this correspondence because it was to another author. But this article in the Atlantic was by a gentleman whose father was an author and a client of Maurice Crane's, and he came across a letter from Maurice saying that a good novel takes a lot of work. As an example. No novel that he had ever worked with had gone through as much revision and replanning and restructuring as To Kill a Mockingbird. But it was worth it, he said. So there's her agent, you know, commenting uh, uh, sort of on the side uh, about how much was involved in bringing that book to market. So so let's talk about real life again. I mean, her father, uh, A.C. Lee. Yes. uh, I'm reading, again, in your biography. Cater Alexander Lee was a Confederate veteran who Mm. fought in 22 battles, including Gettysburg. She came from a very old South family. Yes. And uh, there was a lot to admire about her father, but would her father have taken on a case like Tom Robinson's in real life? Well, you know, it's very interesting. If you look carefully at To Kill a Mockingbird, He's appointed to take the case. Um, he doesn't step forward. Um, and this is something that you, you know, sometimes have to do as an attorney. Um, people are entitled to a defense. In fact, Mr. Lee has, in his own life, as a young attorney with only four years' experience, was appointed to defend two young black men accused of murdering a white man. And despite his best efforts, they were both hanged. So um, lawyers were appointed for the hapless and the, the you know, the, the downtrodden. But uh, if they happened to be black, there was something in the South called Negro law. Well, not official, but, you know, went by that idiom. Negro law, which meant that they would get an attorney and they would get the benefit of some court time. Um, but the, the conclusion was foregone. And you get a sense of that in To Kill a Mockingbird, in that Atticus takes the case, does his best, but in his heart he knows he's not going to win. And uh, the people in the gallery, too, Tom Robinson's uh, family and friends, uh, know what, what's going to happen here as well, but they admire Atticus for trying. And, and yet it's more than just trying, because again, Atticus, the character in To Kill a Mockingbird, there's that amazing quote, one of the great quotes on empathy that I've ever read. It goes beyond just walking in someone else's shoes. Remember the quote? Uh, well, you're talking about that uh, how people are treated under the Constitution. Uh, no, the, the one, the one about being in someone else's skin. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, Nell is scout. The nine-year-old is starting to parrot some of the cruel things that she hears. 
you know, on the playground about this trial and her father and everything like that. And her father says, you know, you can never understand someone until you walk around in their shoes, which is a very simple way of explaining um, empathy and compassion to a child, not just tolerance, not just putting up with people, but trying to understand them. And I've been trying to make this argument in connection with Ghost at a Watchman. I, I would not like people to dismiss it out of hand because this Atticus Finch is a segregationist and a racist, uh, a man who's afraid of change. Uh, we should embrace it, and we should try to understand why these people feel this way. In fact, uh, Harper Lee in Ghost at a Watchman devotes two, three pages to her uncle Jack Finch explaining why Southerners feel different from other people. And you'll recognize some of the old states' rights argument and lost cause, you know, and that sort of thing. But this was the, you know, this, he repeats the credo of the South, which is that they are a different nation, that they are more feudal than the Norse, and that their way of life was disrupted and would never be the same. And if I can just uh, expand on the quote we began with, I, I just found it. If, if, if Atticus tells her, uh, tells Scout, if you learn just a single trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really, and this this gets at the original phrasing, you never really understand a person until you can th- consider things from his point of view. Until, and this is the phrase I love, until you climb inside his inside of his skin, yes, and walk around in it, yes. and and so. You know, he feels like more than a person who's just doing his legal obligation. Now, let me ask you, in, in real life, her mm-hmm. father yes. was a segregationist, but not for his whole life. No. What happened? Well, he saw the South changing. His, as you pointed out, his father, Catter Lee, was a member of the 15th Alabama who fought to the bitter end and surrendered at Appomattox. And his son, A.C. Lee, uh, Nell's father, saw the new South, uh, saw the change that was coming, but couldn't stand any more change by the 1950s. Uh, In the 1930s, you have to understand, when people were impoverished, um, it it, it looked a lot like the old South, uh, except that everybody was hurting. But, you know, things had frozen in time. Telephones were rare. Indoor plumbing was rare. Uh, The average amount of schooling among Southerners during the 30s was eighth grade. But by the 1950s, things are starting to come apart. Big fissures are being seen, and uh, Mr. Lynch is afraid, or Mr. Lee is afraid of that. Um, did he change? Yes. As a matter of fact, I think *To Kill a Mockingbird* was one of the things in persuading him that a, a kind of tsunami was coming, and that he needed to, you know, ride it. Uh, in about 1962, he was talking to a newspaper reporter, and at that time, Mr. Lee was very much involved in redistricting, helping to redistrict southern Alabama for fairer representation. And as he said to the reporter, it, it's just got to be done. And I think as a state legislator, as a, a lawyer, as a compassionate man, um, this was something he realized there was no stopping. And they were starting to have race problems. I mean, racial anger problems in, in Monroeville with graffiti and marches by the Klan. So I think he saw this as the only viable way out. So here's something from Sidney Cleland from Valdosta, Georgia. And uh, one of my children's teachers who, who loves to teach To Kill a Mockingbird and has gotten a lot of kids, uh, 13, 14 year olds, excited about literature uh, through this book. So here's, um, uh, she says she would love to hear your thoughts about To Kill a Mockingbird regarding themes other than racism, Mm. specifically sexism and class. Because she says, and these are uh, Sidney Cleland's words, Scout fights against the roles prescribed for women while simultaneously realizing that the women are often strong in their own right. And Scout, and more particularly Jem, struggle with what exactly it means to have, quote, background in mm-hmm. Aunt Alexandra's lexicon. Mm-hmm. So I think she says the book is more complex than it's often seen. And she adds, while I haven't read the new work, my sense from the reactions that most people idolize Atticus because they see him as one-dimensional. I think that's both an unfair reading of the book and may affect their ability to see that just because he felt it was right to treat everyone with dignity, 
and to uphold his duty under the law and his moral code to provide a strong defense for Tom, that does not mean he wasn't a product of his time. It's one thing to treat all with dignity and quite another to experience the dismantling of the social order, such as the desegregation of the South. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, the, the catalyst into Kill a Mockingbird is Scout. She's the one who changes. Boo does not. Atticus does not. Jem remains a boy, although he's beginning to understand his responsibilities as a young man. But the, the agent of change, the person who develops the most, is Scout. And she exposes us to some of the hypocrisy in town with the church ladies. Uh, she gets a little talk from her favorite English teacher, Miss Maudie, across the street, who tells her that a man like Atticus Finch is rare, that he does the heavy lifting for the rest of us. Uh, she talks to Dolphus Raymond, who's in an interracial marriage, and realizes that one of the reasons Mr. Raymond always f- appears to be drunk when he's in town is so that people won't bother him. <laughs> right. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's funny and sad. It's bitter and sweet. Um, we're seeing that uh, this is a very complicated town, and Scout is just beginning to learn how to negotiate it. And now let, let me let me raise one, a couple of other things. So I, I, I wrote somebody today who, who, who I've come to know over the years, a former uh, chief of fiction at The New Yorker, Daniel Menneker. Do you know him? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he was also a, a major figure in the public, publishing industry. And uh, I'm going to play you a, a little tape he sent me because I asked for his reaction to the to, to everything swirling around this story. Okay. Um, and uh, the first thing I did was I sent him a couple of tweets from, of all people, Joyce Carol Oates, mm. who tweets a lot. And, and I <laughs> she writes her, a lot too. You know that she does. <laughs> and, I, and I found her tweets on this uh, on this subject very interesting. Uh, uh, before the right before the book came out, but when we knew what it was about. Uh, before uh, the new book came out, she said, hoping that a sequel to Huckleberry Finn won't be unearthed, in which Huck is a 50-year-old racist who'd betrayed Jim to slavers. <laughs> and then, so I found that somewhat humorous, but also, I mean, it, there it is sort of shocking to see the contradiction within Atticus. And then um, she writes another one. Most young writers would not do the bidding of an editor as Harper Lee did. But mm-hmm. then they would not be renowned and much rewarded either. Right. Which gets into what we were just talking about. Yes, very much so. Um, and so let me, uh, so I, I sent that to Daniel Menneker, and if I could, let me, I'm going to play for you his, uh, his response, and you can react to any or all of it if you like, okay? Here mm-hmm. we go. Well, the Joyce Carol Oates tweets, the first one is less funny than it wants to be, It's just sort of ironic and doesn't shed any light on anything about this matter. And the second one is so equivocal as to sort of baffle me as to what it really means or whether it has any significance. About whether To Kill a Mockingbird is a great novel, well, I don't think so. I think it's a really good book, and I think it's historically important, and really that's about it. I've been rereading it, and its style is sort of like Twain in a lot of ways. And it's very clear and natural and impressive, and often very funny. To me, as I've said in an email to you, Michael, the whole thing is sort of embarrassing because it has turned a really good and important American book into a pop culture phenomenon about which people like me are expatiating all over the place. And I do strongly suspect that the author was not competent to give her permission for the publication of this book. The only evidence I have for that is that uh, the contradictory statements that Tanya Carter, I think her name is, um, the different accounts that she's given of what happened in the publication of the book. I also think that it shows that publishing is a really sort of demi-profession. I was in it for 15 years, and the conflict between commerce and art um, was always present in my mind. And it means that, you know, you need to sell books. You need to move units, and that's what Harper's doing. And I really don't fault them for it. I just think the whole thing's kind of you sad. You want to react to any Well, yeah, the, 
I, I, I have to agree with Joyce Carol Oates in her first tweet, as much as it's tongue-in-cheek about let's, let's hope that we don't find out that Huck Finn turned Jim in. What she's hitting on is the difference between art and reporting. Uh, if Mark Twain was just writing about the reality on the ground along the Mississippi, uh, you know, in the late 19th century, probably Huck would turn him in for the money. People are that venal. But that's not the purpose of art. The purpose of art is to be provocative, to make us think, to take us in new places, challenge our preconceived notions. And that's one of the problems with Go Set a Watchman. It's more reporting than art. Um, uh, I agree with your colleagues' remarks that uh, publishing uh, is an odd profession. Uh, it depends on the integrity of the people involved. And I, it's kind of a clumsy book. Uh, Alice would never allow the, the book to come to light, but no sooner does, has she passed away than the seal is broken and the book appears. Um, and I don't really think that publishing this book is in anyone's interest except as a cultural event because it, it shocks us into thinking who, who we were in the 20th century and, th- and how can it be that many of these problems still remain. And just to circle it back to our main subject, Harper Lee herself. So here is a woman who did, with the influence of editors and others, did come to write something that could at least help us imagine how to tap into our better selves. Yes. Right? Yes. And yet, reading in your book about her later in life, uh, she uh, she was also uncomfortable with certainly the strategies of the civil rights movement. Yes. Uh, I mean, she did feel a threat to her way of life as, as much as she transcended it in her literature. Mm-hmm. Just tell me a little bit about that. And, and you know, was Harper Lee as pure <laughs> as Atticus Finch? Well, audiences are always surprised when I, I speak to them, and inevitably somebody raises his or her hand and says, well, what did, what did Miss Lee think about the civil rights movement? And I said that her views were pretty typical of people in the South, which was, given time, the South would solve its own problems. But that sending in uh, the National Guard and federalizing uh, marshals and people like that was just going to cause more heartache and more bloodshed. So the the South (laughs) was pleading that it needed more time, that 100 years wasn't (laughs) enough. And and I have to laugh because it's, it's... it's sad, but it's also typical of people who are happy with the status quo. Uh, maybe tomorrow will be a better day, you know, as Scarlett O'Hara said. <laughs> but it never is, unless you make an effort. Let me ask you this. If, if I could use my influence to mm-hmm. somehow get to Harper Lee and transmit a question to her for you, mm-hmm. at this point, what are, you, what are you dying to know from Harper Lee? Um, do you understand the impact that this new book has had on your fans. I'd, I'd really like to know her, her take on that. By the way, if you were back to teaching today mm-hmm. in that Chicago school district, yes. and the news had just broken, mm-hmm. and you were introducing, first of all, would you assign the two books together? Yes, very much so. Because one is kind of a sociological document in that it, it takes you into the mindset of people a long time ago, and the other is a, a very good novel. You could teach a, a marvelous creative writing class by using Go Set a Watchman as Don't Do This <laughs> and Kill a Mockingbird as Here's What You Want to Do. Now let's find out why one novel succeeds and how it's constructed and how the other novel doesn't work. So I, but, the but contrast you know that, is... But, but that hyper-awareness, I'm, I'm thinking of my, my teenage son now, that hyper-awareness almost takes the magic away from it because it doesn't allow you to get absorbed in this character who Atticus, who may be showing you a way, you know, it reminds me mm-hmm. as we speak last night was in New York was the premiere of the Stanford prison experiment, the movie, mm-hmm. the Stan- the famous 1971 Stanford prison experiment where professor Phil Zimbardo, social psychology professor, uh, took 24 or so students from Stanford, very healthy emotionally, uh, set up a mock prison in the basement of the psychology building. Twelve of them were told to play the role of prison guard. Twelve of them were told to play the role of inmates. And it was supposed to be a two-week study. After six days, it got out of hand. 
Professor Zimbardo himself didn't stop the experiment until a graduate student of his came and said, you know, there's those guards, the kids who are playing the guards are starting to abuse the others. We've got to stop this. Right. And he said, you know what, you're absolutely right. He ended up marrying that graduate student who had that good moral sense. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I had spoken to him recently, and what he is doing now in his 80s, and this in some ways ties back to the book, it's like, well, how do you raise people to do the right thing in difficult circumstances? And he started something called the Heroic Imagination Project, where they have these education modules and they send them out to the schools. And in little ways, it starts getting in, you know, training kids to get into their muscle memories, uh, uh, the uh, doing the right thing mm -hmm. for the for the for the common good in little ways, so that when they're really tested in a situation that counts, they'll be ready. And in some ways, a great novel. It sparks one's heroic imagination, doesn't it? It does, uh, because a hallmark of great literature is that a great book reads you as you read it. In other words, your preconceived notions are challenged. You have to wonder what your convictions are and how far you would go to stand up in for what you believe, whether it's uh, on the negative side, revenge or, or justice or uh, you know, freedom of worship, uh, any of those things. And so by that measure alone, To Kill a Mockingbird is a great book because it touches people's hearts. Um, you asked me, you know, how would I teach this book to young people? I think maybe to redouble the impact of To Kill a Mockingbird, one way of pulling it out of the fire now would be to teach To Kill a Mockingbird and then to teach Go Set a Watchman and ask the students how they feel and why. Well... We will, we will put that question out there and, uh, and see if we get responses. Okay. Thank you so much uh, for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Uh, Charles Shields, um, it's uh, great, been great talking to you. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <laughs> Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.